Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. I am joined today by Dr. Kruthi Yagnik. Kruthi is an ID staff physician and co-director of antibiotic stewardship at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, Indian River Hospital. She completed her ID fellowship at UT Southwestern Medical Center, her internship and residency at the University of Florida, and her med school education at Nova Southeastern University. She has a particular interest in general ID HIV and opportunistic infections, and antibiotic stewardship. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, So before we get started, we like to pride ourselves as everyone's favorite culture podcast. So I'd love to hear a little piece of culture or, you know, something that you like to do outside of work. So I am like a big fan of movies and TV shows. And I would say probably my top favorite shows are probably like Schitt's Creek, um, obviously medical, so Scrubs, um, Breaking Bad, Stranger Things season four was pretty sweet. So I know. It was like, I can't believe I have to wait so long for the next one. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And then probably Game of Thrones um, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are probably like my top favorite shows. Yeah, I love it so much. Yeah, that's the only thing about these amazing high quality television shows is now you have to wait so much longer between seasons. I know. It's like just that uh, countdown that you have that you have to just wait for that <laughs> that next season to come on. But yeah, it makes yeah. it worth it, I guess. Yeah. And so if listeners had not already noticed, this summer I've had a few uh, fever and returning traveler episodes, and we're going to keep the theme going today. I really thought this would be a nice introduction because new fellows are getting settled in, but also we're finally seeing people travel a lot more this summer. I I guess if their flights aren't canceled, (laughs) they're traveling. Um, And so I wanted us to have a couple episodes that focused on things that we might see more commonly. So if people listen to the last two episodes, um, but today we're actually going to talk about an interesting case that you saw on fellowship. I'm not going to give any spoilers yet, but we thought we would just start with a kind of a review and a reminder, re-emphasizing what we've talked about in some of the prior episodes. And that would be how to evaluate these patients who come in with a fever that have recently traveled somewhere. And from a history standpoint, we talk a lot about symptoms And really the time period of those symptoms, how important that timeline and comparing it to incubation periods is. And then certainly all the other things we like to know, like, what did you do while you were traveling? Were you spelunking? Were you swimming? Were you around animals, insects? Um, And then we certainly talk about food and water consumption. And then something that we also have emphasized is vaccinations and whether or not Patients have had some sort of chemo prophylaxis provided before their trip. And so, Kruthi, uh, a couple of our last guests have included places or references that they point learners to when they're encountering these cases. I thought I would start by asking if you had a favorite thing that you like to mention to everyone and any other sort of special pearls when approaching these patients. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, as you mentioned, history is so important, especially in the infectious disease world. And a lot of things you can just find out by just talking to your patients and getting a better idea of what exactly they did when they were traveling, who they were around, you know, if animal exposures, activities, I think all those things are really, really important. And then of course, if these people did get their pre-travel vaccinations or prophylaxis, because that makes a huge difference. 
One of the websites that I really like is the CDC Traveler's Health website. Um, what's really great about it is if you go to that website and you actually can, can click down to exactly which country they may have traveled to, and it tells you based on that country kind of the risk factors of what they may be exposed to, and then the recommendations on if they need certain types of vaccinations or prophylaxis. So I think that's a great start to look for kind of exposure risk by country. And I know we'll include that website. And I think another important thing is always kind of when you get a patient like this that comes to the ER or to your hospital and you get that call as that fellow on call that night, you should always ask yourself, does this patient need isolation? Because that's huge. And we always have to consider things like Ebola, severe respiratory viruses, diarrheal illnesses, and things that can actually be contagious to other patients. So the way I approach this is, you know, if you don't know what this patient has yet, but it sounds contagious or it sounds like it's something severe, always when in doubt, just place them in isolation until you can see them, you know, if it's an overnight call, until you see them the next morning, until you can get some more lab work back, until you can rule out a couple of things. It's better to kind of err on that side of caution and put them in isolation. And I know we already kind of talked a little bit about it, but you know, don't ever forget that you have to rule out malaria because malaria is an infectious disease emergency. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like all the lists that you have for fever and returning traveler probably should have malaria one through like 10. Absolutely. <laughs> and then add on everything else. Always, always. Um <laughs> Uh, great. So we're going to jump to the case. And today's consult question, not surprisingly, is fever and a returning traveler. So we have a 51-year-old man with a history of hypertension who presented for evaluation of fevers, confusion, lethargy, and a 35-pound weight loss. And so he had been confused at home and had some difficulty with word finding. His sister is with him and reports that he had been completely well or at what his baseline until about five months prior to presentation. And then the family had started to notice generalized weakness, confusion, and then really progression to what was more of somnolence. Around this time, he started to have fevers and weight loss. He did not have any other associated symptoms such as headache, cough, dyspnea, rash, joint pain, or diarrhea. And so for a little background about the patient, he was born in Cameroon attended college in Nigeria, and then returned to Cameroon to work as a missionary and a theological professor. He has a pretty extensive travel history. Um, back in 2001, he had traveled to Mali, Senegal, Algeria, and Guinea, um, immigrated to the U.S., and then has had a couple trips since living in the U.S. So in 2013, he traveled to several countries, including back to Cameroon, Nigeria, South Africa, Ghana, the Central African Republic, and many other non-African countries. His last trip to Cameroon was in 2017. Um, and then in November of 2018, he did have a trip in Ghana where he spent some time outdoors and mentions that he had an insect bite on his thigh that was a little bit red, a little bit painful. Uh, he did have some weakness and fatigue around this time, which was similar to a prior episode of malaria. This improved, though. He had been doing a little bit better, but then in May of 2019, he developed fever, night sweats, and weight loss. Uh, he had been traveling at the time, continued traveling, visited Jerusalem in June of 2019, so about a month into these uh, newer symptoms, and he had a syncopal event requiring hospitalization, but we don't really have any other details available to us. 
He is back in the U.S. as of July of 2019. And when he got back, he went to a local hospital for fever, weight loss, and this weakness. He had a CT scan of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis, which showed diffuse lymphadenopathy and ultimately had a supraclavicular lymph node biopsy, but the results were benign, didn't show any evidence of malignancy. And so the patient was discharged home without really a clear diagnosis of what was going on. And unfortunately, his symptoms progressed to the point where he was having nightly fevers. And this sort of ties us back to where we were talking earlier. He had been increasingly confused and weak. He has stopped working completely and actually has been using a wheelchair to get around. He came to your hospital with this confusion, weakness, and now somnolence. When you meet him on exam, he is cachectic. He is febrile and tachycardic. He has no evidence of lymphadenopathy at this point, and his cardiac, respiratory, abdominal, and skin exams were normal. And then on neurology exam, I mentioned he was uh, slow to respond. We have all this information about his travel, thankfully, with a lot of details right now. And then these symptoms. So what are you thinking about at this point? How are you going to approach this case? Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of summarize this, we have this elderly gentleman um, with an extensive travel history. He's kind of traveled all over the world. This is what he does for work. And he's presenting with fevers, weight loss, confusion, and just progressively worsening neurological symptoms to the point that he's now somnolent. Over in this case, I think the most important thing is his travel history is extremely important because he's been to so many places and you have to really think about where he's been and what could he have been exposed to. So by looking at his travel history, I think that that could definitely shorten our differential because the places that he's been to would point us to certain things. And then you also have to think about which infections are most prevalent in those countries. So the way I kind of approach this is that, you know, this case would be a typical case of kind of fever of unknown origin. This person has had fevers for many weeks now, has had a little bit of a workup with no answer at this point. And kind of going back to kind of what we think of when a patient comes in with fever of unknown origin, the most common causes are usually infectious, rheumatologic, or malignancy. So, you know, you have to definitely think about all those things and roll these things out in these patients. So our initial differential here is, you know, obviously we consider rheumatologic and malignancy and we did run um, certain autoimmune tests, ANA, things to look for lupus, Sjogren's disease, um, some other things. And then our initial infectious differential was along the lines of tuberculosis, HIV, obviously malaria, African trypanosomiasis, other endemic fungal infections, and then just other vector-borne infections just because he had recalled that insect bite that he had in the past. So what we do at this point is, you know, we develop a differential in our mind. We say, based on where he's been, these are the things he could have been exposed to. These are the things that he might have. So where do we go next? And you always want to start with kind of a basic initial workup. So that usually considers into fact things like basic labs. So obviously check blood counts, check kidney function, liver function, CBC, CMP. To rule out malaria, you always have to check those blood smears. And then based on kind of what symptoms they have, you want to go a little bit further and you can consider imaging. You know, if patients came in with respiratory symptoms, you would do a chest x-ray or a CT scan of the chest. And you always want to kind of start there and go further. If they're having urinary symptoms, you can check a urinalysis, check a urine culture, check blood cultures, kind of start with your basic infectious workup. And then if they're having diarrheal symptoms, you can check a stool culture, 
stool oba parasites if they had exposure in other countries. And then if you are concerned about things like dengue, Zika, chikungunya, then you can check viral serologies. Um, patients that always travel to other countries, there's always a risk of hepatitis A. You can do hepatitis testing and then also get further imaging based on their symptoms. So in this patient's case, you know, one of his main concerning symptoms was his confusion, his lethargy, his somnolence. You know, obviously we were concerned that something was going on neurologically. So in his case, we did definitely get a CT scan, CT of the head, an MRI of the brain, and we got a lumbar puncture because, you know, we have to rule out neurological things in this patient. Yeah. I'll update everyone on our results. We had our CBC and our chemistries, which were normal. We had some of the autoimmune rheumatologic screens that you mentioned that were unrevealing. His CT chest, abdomen, pelvis showed some scattered bilateral axillary and inguinal lymph nodes, largest at about a centimeter in size. And then we had mentioned those lymph node biopsies from our prior admission, which were negative for malignancy. And comparing the images, there wasn't something that stood out as new or concerning for malignancy. And then, as you mentioned, from a ID standpoint, the workup was quite broad. We had blood cultures, we had peripheral blood smears, we had uh, MTB interferon gamma release assay, syphilis screening, EBV and CMV blood PCRs. We have urine histoplasma antigen endemic fungal antibody tests, so including blasto and coccidio, and then serum beta-D-glucan, galactamanin, and cryptococcal antigen. We had rickettsia antibodies, West Nile virus testing, and a Lyme antibody, all of which, everything I just mentioned, were negative. There was a HIV test that had an indeterminate HIV-2 antibody result, but confirmatory testing confirmed this as a false positive. Um, he also had a CD4 count, which was normal. We have the MRI and CT of the brain, which was normal. His LP was done. At this point, we're sort of on the second day of admission. And the cerebrospinal fluid shows 638 nucleated cells, and on that dip, 100% lymphocytes. The cytology did not show any malignant cells. And then we'll sort of fast forward and already let you know that the CSF testing for arboviruses, VDRL, HSV, VZV, and enterovirus are all negative. So we've done all these tests, and unfortunately, we don't have a definitive answer here. So the patient continues to have some intermittent fevers. Initially, it was about daily, and now it's starting to space out, but still persistent at least every couple days. And his somnolence seems to be worsening despite broad-spectrum antimicrobials. So vancomycin, ceftriaxone, piperacillin-tazobactam, acyclovir, and doxycycline. So what's your next step here? What do you think we might be missing? Yeah, so this is definitely a tough case. You know, we've kind of looked at malignancy. We've looked at rheumatological things. We've done a huge infectious workup on, on things that we would expect something to have come up positive. And so far, we didn't see anything. So we're kind of in a position where everything was negative, but the patient continued to worsen. And, you know, we put him on broad spectrum antibiotics. He was on antivirals with acyclovir. He was on doxycycline for tick-borne illnesses. And we thought at this point, you know, we really need to broaden our workup. So we looked at some of the not so common causes of the patient's symptoms. The main thing that we were really edging on here was his extensive travel history. You know, that did put him at risk for many infections that we don't typically see in the United States. And then kind of looking at his lumbar puncture, this was the interesting part because it was definitely not normal. He had 638 nucleated cells with 100% lymphocyte predominance. So there was definitely some inflammation there. And we were kind of wondering where to go from here because all of his CSF studies were negative. 
we decided at that point, you know, he was having these fevers, he's having weight loss, and he's having scattered lymphadenopathy. He had negative biopsies of his lymph nodes. So at this point, we said, why don't we get a bone marrow biopsy and see what's going on there? Yeah. And as we always say, a diagnostic test was performed. So the bone marrow aspirate, which at this point was about day 10 of admission, revealed normal cellular marrow with necrotizing granulomatous inflammation. The fungal and acid fast bacilli stains were negative, but we do get some information that reveals our answer here. Two trypanosomes were identified on the marrow aspirate smear by the ID pathologist and microbiologist, and the morphology was consistent with trypanosoma brucei. So here we have a final diagnosis of human African trypanosomiasis, also known as African sleeping sickness, um, something that we definitely don't see commonly. So can you tell us about what you learned about human African trypanosomiasis with this case? Absolutely. I'd love to. So this was an incredibly fascinating case because it's something that I feel like most of us have never seen and may not ever see. And I just want to give like a huge thank you to our amazing pathologist that we had because they did such an amazing job looking at that slide to be able to identify those trypanosomes. Um, we actually had them go back a couple of times and look at his CSF again. We were telling them about this patient and saying, you know, we don't know what's going on. And they spent a lot of time being very thorough. So if it wasn't for the extensive evaluation they did, we may have never made this diagnosis. Human African trypanosomiasis is known as African sleeping sickness, and it's an infectious disease that's endemic to sub-Saharan Africa. It's caused by the parasite Trypanosoma brucei, which is transmitted by a tsetse fly, which is the Glossinia genus. And most people that are exposed to the tsetse fly and to the disease usually live in rural areas. And they depend on agriculture, fishing, and animal husbandry and hunting. So there are two forms of the disease that are caused by a different subspecies. You have T. brucei gambiensiae, which is endemic to West and Central Africa. And this is usually kind of a slowly progressive disease. This is the one that's most prevalent, about 95% of cases. And these patients can be infected for kind of many months or years without any major signs or symptoms. And then when they finally have symptoms, they're usually pretty far advanced with CNS findings. So that's when you talk about things like the lethargy, the somnolence, um, all those neurological issues. And then you have T. brucei rhodiensiae, which is endemic in Eastern and Southern Africa. And this is more of an acute illness that kind of comes on over a span of weeks. So, you know, when you're thinking about this, you have to really distinguish between the two because the way they present is extremely different. And the most important thing about this is that this disease is considered fatal if it's left untreated. The disease usually goes through kind of two different stages. You have a hemolymphatic stage, which is when it's in the blood, followed by a meningoencephalitic stage when they actually cross the blood-brain barrier. And then once the parasites go into the blood-brain barrier, you get these typical neurological symptoms like our patient had, which consists of things like mental confusion, abnormal behavior, tremors weakness, issues with speech. They can even have seizures. And then eventually this does progress to somnolence, which is what happened to our patient. So transmission is usually through the tsetse fly bite, uh, but it can also be including things like mechanical transmission, accidental in the lab, and also sexual contact. Our patient had an extensive travel history. He had been ill for several months but at that time, you know, human Africa trypanosomiasis was considered unlikely just because it's, it's pretty rare for us to see it here. But he did report travel to only urban areas in both Ghana and Cameroon. 
So that was another thing that where we thought, you know, he was in only in these urban areas and this is usually more prevalent in the rural areas. So that's why we didn't really think that it was possible. And, you know, there's been a lot of reports saying that in those urban areas, HAT may be eliminated. What was really interesting in this case is because it was such a complex travel history and there was so much involved, we did report this case to the WHO. And the patient reported travel to only urban areas in Ghana and Cameroon. But we were told that the distinction between the urban and the rural areas in Momfe, Cameroon, which is where he went, was kind of blurred. And there has been recorded transmission in the peri-urban areas. So we were told that it was possible that he may have acquired this infection when he was in Momfe, Cameroon, where, you know, even though he was in an um, an urban area, he may have still caught it there. What's really interesting here is that this is a very, very rare diagnosis in returning travelers. There's something called a geosentinel surveillance network, which kind of monitors returning travelers. And Trypanosoma brucei gambiensiae, human African trypanosomiasis, is very rare. There was only a single case reported amongst over 42,000 ill-returning travelers between 2007 and 2011. So that tells you that this is not something that we see very often. Yeah. And something I learned when reviewing this is that Uganda is the only location that potentially would have both forms of disease, although they're sort of in separate zones. Um, And so we'll put a link. I think a really good reference is the WHO fact sheet. So people want a good summary of the highlights. That's a great place to go. I think the next question is, let's say we were more concerned about this early on. Are there other diagnostics that we could have used if we were highly suspicious of this? Yeah, absolutely. So usually definitive diagnosis relies on microscopic visualization of the parasite, which is what we did in our case. Uh, We actually were able to see the parasite on that bone marrow smear. However, there is a card agglutination test for trypanosomiasis. It's called a CATT. It's very fast and sensitive, and it screens for trypanosoma brucei gambiensiae antibodies in blood, plasma, or serum. There's also a PCR test in the blood, which is very sensitive and specific. Serological and PCR tests are unfortunately not available in the United States, but they can be performed at several reference labs outside the U.S. So we actually did have to send our samples to a couple of reference labs not in the United States to confirm our diagnosis, because although we did visualize the parasite on smear, we did want to confirm it before we started appropriate treatment. There's a, there's a couple of different ways that you can look at it, but usually have a multidisciplinary approach to get it done. Yeah. And I was I was going to say that's a perfect transition because I think we're going to finish up and talk a little bit about treatment and what are the options available if we have the unlikely chance that we see a patient with this. Yeah, of course. So uh, the diagnosis and treatment for this case was done in collaboration with the CDC Division for Parasitic Diseases and Malaria and the WHO. So they helped us with sending out the samples, confirming the diagnosis and obtaining the treatment. So there's actually been significant progress made in the development of new oral agents capable of curing both stages of Gambiensiae HAT. And we actually followed the WHO guidelines for treatment of severe disease with nifurtimox and eflurothene. And what was interesting is this was actually the first time that that combination therapy NECT was used for treatment of meningoencephalitic stage of T. brucei Gambiensiae HAT in the United States. So we had to coordinate with the CDC, and we used an investigational new drug application to obtain those medications and to give it to our patient. Well, this is this is such an awesome case. And this was published in OFID. So for uh, anyone who's listening that wants to read a little bit more or check out some of the images and figures that came with that, we'll have a link. But most importantly, how did the patient do? Yeah, so very exciting news. He did great. Pretty much, you know, he had been having these symptoms for months, not doing well. 
And then as soon as we gave him the medications, in about four days, his mental status significantly improved. He obviously did require um, some time in rehab, but he was discharged from the hospital about a month after he was admitted, fully recovered, had some time in rehab, and then was discharged home. And, you know, I think last time we had spoken with him during a couple of follow-ups, he was back to working and pretty much back to his baseline. So just amazing how quickly he got better after getting the medications. And I just wanted to also put out there that I really appreciated all the work of my co-authors who were really, you know, instrumental in every part of this case, Um, all of the faculty at UT Southwestern, you know, even though not everybody was able to be published on the case, we had so many people that we were running this case by, people that were giving us advice, helping us with testing, just people to bounce ideas off of. And they were all just amazing and helping us with this. And then obviously also thank the CDC and the WHO who were all integral in diagnosis and treating this patient. And, you know, what's important is in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of concerted efforts to diagnose, treat, and eliminate this disease. And the World Health Organization has actually targeted the interruption of transmission of this by 2030. Yeah, well, this is a really interesting zebra case, really meant to complement the prior episodes, which focus on what we're going to see much more commonly. But I think this is also a really great example of the amazing multidisciplinary teams that we often get to be a part of and, and really to learn from in ID. All right. Well, I leave a little space at the end to see if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you so much for having me. This has been really awesome. This was just such a great case and I just love sharing it with people. And I think again, just, you know, as as ID doctors and in what we do, the main thing is always get a good history, trust your instincts, you know, ask around. Um, that was one of the things that we did where, you know, when we hit a couple of roadblocks or we just didn't know where to go with this, you know, we talked to other people in our group, we, you know, called people and other departments, like, utilize the people around you. Uh, If you don't have an answer yet, keep looking because (laughs) you will find one. As ID doctors, I know we always keep looking, but I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And always kind of keep an open mind and keep reading. Um, And I think that's kind of the most important stuff here. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your case. Thanks for having me. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out the last two episodes, which also tackle Fever and Returning Traveler. You can also check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.